Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. I'm Julia Stainforth and I'm Maddie Croucher and we're the hosts of this podcast. This week we've tried something new. Instead of an interview, we're experimenting with a different but classic podcasting format. We gathered a few members of the Ogilvy Change team to have a chat about the psychology of an everyday topic. Before we kick off, we just want to tell you about Nudgestock, our annual behavioral science festival that's happening on June 8th down in Folkestone. If you enjoy this podcast, then make sure to check out our fantastic speaker lineup in the description. Now, here we are with Dan Bennett and Mike Hughes discussing Dan's favourite topic, the psychology of flying. Hello everyone, welcome to the Obehave podcast, live and direct from the Obehave studio. <laughs> it's not a studio, it's just a room. Um, I'm Mike Hughes. And today I have some very familiar voices, which you might recognise from previous Obehave podcasts. We have Mr. Daniel Bennett. Hello. And Ms. Julia Stainford. Hello. And Ms. Maddie Croucher. Hi. Oh, Maddie's going to talk. She said she wasn't going to talk. <laughs> now she's going to talk. Um, and today we are going to try something slightly different, which is us taking an event or an experience or a product, basically a tenant of capitalism and explaining the psychology behind it. Why do we feel the things that we do within it? Why do we, what do people try and make us do? Why do we freak out at certain things within this? And to introduce us to our first subject is Mr. Daniel Bennett, take it away. My name's Daniel Bennett and I have a phobia. Hi Dan. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, So I have a phobia and the phobia started when I was on a plane to Japan. So I was actually on a plane to Hong Kong, we were going to Japan eventually. And um, essentially, sat next to this, I was meeting a friend there, so I sat next to a random guy who was going on his gap near next to me. We hadn't said a word to each other for the whole six hours of the flight. We sat on the right, right back two seats of the plane. And about six or seven hours in, when we were going over the top of China, um, we experienced turbulence for about an hour. And it was an insane amount of turbulence. We were going everywhere. And then at one point, we experienced such a massive drop that the oxygen masks deployed. And it was at that moment, I just thought it was all over. Well, And me and this guy held hands. No. <laughs> never, never revealed that before. Don't even have his number anymore. And, um, and we basically thought it was all over. And the cabin crew in many different languages were trying to quiet everyone down and saying, don't put on the oxygen mask, they deploy back. So were they... people screaming? Was there that thing where people don't want to let out a kind of visible or audible reaction to the fact that they think they're going to die, or was everyone going crazy? It was silent, and then it started, and then it was just going, going, yeah. going. So it was, it was, it was awful. And then, um, anyway, so the mass, the mass came down, and within me straight away was just struck a chord of absolute fear going forwards. And, um, and the turbulence didn't stop there for another couple of hours, but you'd kind of got used to it by then. It was the middle of the night. Um, I was in economy. That no, wasn't helping. Um, and, um, really endearing yourself, Dan. Yeah. And um, 
And it was terrible. So by the time I'd landed, I had a four-hour changeover at Hong Kong before I went to Japan. It was a plane I didn't want to get on. Um, but in that time, the thing that I did was, went to the nearest Starbucks, got myself logged onto Wi-Fi, and just wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. I was desperate to know why turbulence happened, what could happen if anything bad would happen, what I should do, what position I should get myself in yeah. if the turbulence starts again, to just understand it. Because I think part of it was like, having such fear created such a need to fill myself with such information to understand it. So it was a real kind of like needing to feed the knowledge. What I ended up doing over the next two years was watching so much air crash investigation so I could really know exactly what goes wrong with planes and then starting to read papers and starting to meet people. Because it is an area where people are so uncertain about flying, aren't they? But apparently it's the safest. Is it the safest? Or is that just something that people say? Isn't it you're more likely to die in a car crash on the way to the airport than you are on the plane itself? And people say that to me when I have my fear. And it's like, now I'm terrified of going to the airport. That's <laughs> the only part of my life that I enjoyed. <laughs> I do think Rory said to me once when he said, thing is, Dan, thing is, Dan, you're totally fine because most crashes happen on takeoff, not landing. So I was like, brilliant. So now I'm in the air yeah. waiting for my doom. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, apparently, yeah, apparently more likely to die on the on the train to the airport or the car to the airport than you no, are. No, no, surely trains are super safe. I thought it was a specific car attack. No, planes are safer than trains, you know, I think. What? Yeah. After watching lots of air crash investigation and trying to learn as much as I could about planes, and actually being part of a team of psychologists, I started to see what psychologists were involved in aeroplane safety. And there was one man called Donald Broadbent, and anyone who's done an A-level psychology will recognise the name Broadbent because he's talked a lot about kind of attention and visual processing. What Broadbent did very early on was recognise that the RAF were making such a ridiculous mistake, which was they basically had a plane called the Hurricane, and they were basically really confused as to why people flying those planes would be sitting on the runway about to take off, and instead of taking off, what? <laughs> just pull the wheels up so the whole plane would just wow. drop down the runway. And, they were, and for so long they were like, why are so many people doing this? Do they not want to fly? Do they not want to go to war? Like, maybe, maybe that was it. See, this <laughs> must have been some of the first user experience stuff from, like, kind of, where a lot of people were involved, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, and, and, it, was, and it was. It was... It was essentially, it was the aeroplane version of when you're in your car and when you've got a new car and you accidentally put windscreen wipers on when you're trying to indicate. It was basically, they had a lever, both levers went up and down, but on one on the left, up meant left and down meant yeah. right, but on one on the right, it's the opposite. But I think they'd be doubly surprised because these pilots are highly trained, dedicated uh, people who should, like, that's the, probably the simplest part of their task is to put the flaps down and not the wheels up. So I can imagine some <clears throat> surprised people on the ground, especially yeah. if it consistently kept happening. And the arrogance as well of, of pilots, like it used to be that you have seen catch me if you can, it was the case that they were God and, and, and everyone else was kind of below them. What, isn't there a, I might be slightly jumping off topic, but isn't there a protocol for talking to a pilot? Is there? Yeah. You I looked mean, at me then like the I mean, one. Yeah, well, you weren't going to tell me. Like, point. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is called um, cockpit resource management. There's a man called John Tobar who worked at NASA. Um, and in the 80s, he essentially pulled together. There were so many accidents happening. 50% of accidents in the cockpit were happening because of poor communication. 
rather than which basically solved a lot of the mechanical issues. So a lot of planes went down because they had square windows, and square windows cause cracks in the side. So that's why all, all the aeroplane, all the aeroplanes you're going now have slightly circular windows to stop the cracks. So there's loads of like mechanical stuff that was sorted out. We were just left with kind of psychological there's communications. A that I'm not going to remember, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> you can back. I'm flying on Friday. Hit. Rewind 15 seconds, rewind 15 seconds at any point, everyone, and you can get it all again. Um, or forward, forward, until the interesting bits later. Um, so that was called cockpit resource management. And um, basically, they figured out the best way, or one of the better ways to interact. So they have rules of interaction for the, anyone who works on an aeroplane now. And basically, yeah. since the 80s, um, it's now mandated that any airlines that set up has to follow the rules of the cockpit resource management. So you'll overcome things like the risky shift phenomenon. So the risky shift phenomenon is the idea that two people making a decision will come to a more risky outcome than one person. So if wow. you're flying over Toronto, for example, and you're thinking, oh, the weather's a little bit marginal, it's a bit of a thunderstorm there, but it's that kind of like literally grey area, we don't know whether we should go through. If two people make the decision together, me and Julie or kind of as pilot and co-pilot will kind of psychologically, without knowing, egg each other on a little bit, or at least feel more comfortable knowing that we're both part of the decision. And is it because yes is easier than no? Or yeah. do you think it's partly to do with diffusion of responsibility? You know that you're not the only one accountable, so you take more of a risk. Nice. And that's yeah. funny, isn't it? Given that you will probably die, that we'll still Quite go along with diffusion of responsibility, take. even though... But even though you're both in it together, the fact that, merely the fact the other person is saying it, probably oh, gives you some, some reassurance, like, oh, well, they came up with it too, therefore it must be okay, even though... Like a legitimacy kind yeah. of piece. So can I then tell you about the Swiss cheese model of, of aviation safety? I've never... Which is we get to absolutely point. amazing. Um, it's basically, it's, it's about what you're saying, which is there's not really one cause. A plane doesn't often go down nowadays because we're so trained and we're really good at like looking at why a plane crashed and then re-engineering it for the situation so it doesn't happen again. So the only way where a plane goes down is that there's several factors at once. So your plane will never go down because of turbulence, and it'll never go down because of a, of a pilot switching the engine off by accident. But maybe in turbulence, and the pilot switching the engine off, and something yeah, else yeah, that would yeah. happen. So if you think about mind time, everybody, think about slices of Swiss cheese um, all lined up next to each other. Um, and then imagine a giant red arrow, or Google it, it's a lot easier, a giant red arrow going through the Swiss cheese. It'll probably get through the first hole, but it won't get through the second hole, unless it magically lines up and then it gets to the third hole. Uh, and if it gets yeah. to the third hole, it's probably going to crash. Yeah. So it's, it's about kind of, there's not really one reason why a plane goes down anymore. It's usually a combination of factors. So actually, going back to the um, risky shift phenomenon, in, in the cockpit resource management, the rules that they've learned to overcome the risky shift phenomenon is kind of that diffusion of responsibilities. You now have to go with the default. You basically have to say, the weather in Toronto looks marginal for landing. I think we should do this. Do you agree? And the, with lots of different testing and, 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 um, and research done, they've found that if you default an opinion and then ask for agreement, you're much more likely the other person isn't going to kind of fall into the, the slipstream wow. of your thinking. And, and is this, so, so that specific way of framing decisions, is that trained within the pilots then? Pilots, um, within cabin crew, anyone who operates any measure of safety on the plane and with the people on the ground staff as well. Wow. How much can you 
kind of when the when the co-pilot or the backup pilot, like we've all seen airplanes, so we know that it's just a blow up, a blow up pilot basically <laughs> that then flies the plane. I think it, that's what happens. How much is down to air now, or is it a mix of technology and the psychology of you know the kind of the user experience of the pilots working in the best way? Well, they say the best way to think about how to make aviation safer is to think that there's no such thing as pilot error. Now, that's not to say that pilots don't make errors. That's to say that if you think about how to fix something by recognising that pilots made an error, you're not going to fix it in the right way. So if you go, well, the pilot was just tired. Well, what do you do about that? Well, you make sure you get pilots with more sleep and you, you change the shift patterns. Yeah, that's the part I find fascinating because I think for a long time we were focused on let's just make these super pilots, let's make them better and better. And I think it's evident in other industries as well, including in, in medicine, essentially, where you're expecting people to stay awake and to perform amazing feats um, on sleep deprivation and all these other things. But if, on the other hand, you assume, like you take for granted that, yeah, they're human and they will make an error. How do we design this machine or this system or whatever the environment is within which they're operating to be able to withstand that? Mm -hmm. So that it can't just be that, oh, he messed up and it went down. Yeah, no, let's design something that knows he'll mess up. And that'll make it a much stronger, much safer, uh, much happier machine to get on. And that's wider and more safety pieces, isn't it? You're working safety. Well, exactly, and safety everywhere. So we're working in the manufacturing industry where, um, to a certain degree, I guess it's slightly more controlled, but you're dealing with a lot more people interacting around very dangerous, very big machines. And you can't be 100% certain they're all going to behave in the exact same way every day um, unless they were robots. So understanding that they're humans, how do we design the environment and the task to um, accommodate differences in, those. In, in behavior? There's a really interesting thing I saw the other day where they said, if you think about an overhead projector, you know it takes a long time for the bulb to warm up and therefore when you try and turn it off, it goes, are you sure you want to turn it off? If you're sure you want to turn it off, press the off button again. Yeah, I'm sure when you press it off. So we've managed to, like you say, like design around the human infallibility of just knocking the off button and then oh, having to wait two minutes for it to warm up again. Yeah, many defibrillator machines, you know the machines you get in public yeah. places which kind yeah. of reboot yeah. people, yeah. stress you out. They again take several minutes to warm up before you get kind of a few like short chances to actually bring someone back to life. There is a very easy off switch you can click on that. They haven't designed around that. So there's so wow. many lessons we've learned. You're, you're less likely to turn off an overhead projector than you are a defibrillator machine. So we just need to cross-pollinate a lot of these learnings based Absolutely. on that safety insight. Yeah, I think yeah. this is the core of why I find behavioral science interesting is because not assuming that we're perfect operators means that we can design clever, clever devices and systems and services that understand that that's not going to work perfectly. And therefore, by asking you that backup question or whatever, it makes it a better service for everybody. Even if you are a good user of it, it doesn't in impede your use of it. It just generally makes it better. Which comes back to your original, your first point. Which you were is, listening. <laughs> <laughs> I heard words. Um, that essentially we, we're, we're constantly refining these things, aren't we? Like how, and I think if, if we're on the, the margin, now we're probably, we're working hopefully within the margins on, on some of these things. With your vast research in this area, did you find anything about the kind of experience of 
the passengers. A really interesting piece was that the Boeing company did a study which figured out that if we didn't reduce the rate of accidents as a percentage from several decades ago, if we didn't reduce that down, it would have extrapolated to today as the equivalent of having one jet go down every single week. Wow. So because we had such a, an amount of, of big jumbo crashes across the kind of the 70s and the 80s, if, yeah. and because we fly a lot more now, if we hadn't reduced that, we would have one jumbo a week, and you simply wouldn't have had an aviation industry no one would really board a plane if one was going to go down a week. Whereas one in one in 10,000 Americans, isn't it, would die. I know, four? There's a good amount of Americans that will die every year <laughs> driving a car. And yeah, but with aviation, would get away with it. Apparently people resisted, the, the pilots really hated the introduction of the black box in the cockpit, you know, the, the voice recorder that records them all the yeah. time. They hated it. But eventually they got used to it because they knew it was the right thing to do because then you can look back to what the last five minutes were before the crash. They hated, what was the other thing they hated? It was sort of a big brother fear, like yeah. why do you have to listen to me? And then they also hated the idea of, the airlines hated the idea of having an anonymous um, reporting system so you could go, actually I, I messed up on this today, I don't think it's fired, but it's important that I, the industry knows that this mistakes are happening. Um, they hated that as well, but like you say, that's exactly what's happening with consultants now in surgeries, which are, they're talking about putting in black box data recorders in surgery. So you can uh, learn, gather the data, to then out-design the, the mistakes out of surgery, but the consultants hate it because, again, they feel like there's repercussions. Or... That's an interesting challenge, though, because exactly, like, they hate it for one reason. They hate it because they think people are going to be listening in on them and combing through the data. And The reality is nobody has the time to do that. What they do is they go through it when an event is happening. I'm sure people probably agree that it's okay when the event happens. Yeah, by all means, we want to learn as much as we possibly can. How do you communicate that effectively so that it's not like, because I think so many things that we need to do that makes our job better, like makes us better at our jobs, that gives us that insight we need, can be read as big brother by the people who we're interacting with. So that communication is key. And I think we work really hard to make it land appropriately, but it's interesting exactly like like it took time probably with the airline pilots to figure it out. There's a, there's a really interesting story that Dave Trott tells, which is... Who is Mike's favourite? I met him here and it was like... <laughs> um, there is... I can't remember who learned from who, but there was... Someone was tasked to reduce, I think it was malpractice in surgery, like in action for, for doctors and surgeons. I think it was Atul Gawande, I think was the chap's name. And he, what he did was he, I think he learned from pilots, that pilots had to do this checklist, which was like wheels, wheels, seatbelt, you know, whatever they checked. <laughs> I haven't read up on this, have yeah. um, screen wipers, whatever, whatever it is they checked. Um, and that was, that was the only way that they could reduce the kind you know like it was probably one of a long list of things yeah. that they did that, that it was like they had to audibly check it off like together and uh atul gawande brought that feature into for surgeons to do it that then they could check and it reduced i'll have to ask Dave because i could have got it completely wrong but it's interesting how such and i think the 
the surgeons hated it at first, or the pilots hated it at first, because he thought he was demeaning him, and, mm. you know, it's like, mm. we're, we're surely beyond this. But actually, just that audible checklist with someone else, which is so basic and so simple. And again, you you know, like, how how what are the other ways you'd solve that challenge? Well, would you invest in bad technology? Would you yeah, throw yeah. Whereas just a simple way to address the problem, I think, is often the best way. So I'll find out next time all behaviors. The, the comment about making it an audible checklist is interesting and we, we found a nice example to talk about again in the manufacturing uh, context uh, we, we borrowed some examples from safety around the world and one of them was uh, the Japanese rail system where the conductors uh, practice pointing and calling uh, specific targets uh, that I guess are relevant to the train journey yeah. or the speed or the point or whatever that list of relevant um, objectives is and they like they literally they point to the instrument and they call out the number and it's not to anybody in particular they're probably not even in the front of the train with anybody but just that verbalizing and making and in addition to a physical gesture with it makes it much more likely that one that they pay attention to that uh, that um, marker or whatever and that they remember that they did from the the research I've read, they've credited with a significant reduction in accidents at, at stations. They look um, quite strange doing that, weren't they? Well, with their white gloves on too, it's a it's a bit of a show. I oh, think. maybe it's quite yeah theatrical. Um, but it had, and I think that's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, well, that, that must feel kind of awkward. Then, mm. but they did import it in part to the New York subway system. Um, I think they imported the pointing. I don't think they imported the calling. They they did one or the other, and they also they noticed a. a 30% drop in uh, in incidents at stations in the New York subway system. Wow. Just like by raising that the awareness level of, of conductors at the at important points. So we'll have a phobia and so can we I think <laughs> I need to get back to this thing around <laughs> it's rubbish that flying is totally safe. I used to hate it as well. Most people hate it. Most people hate a little bit. <laughs> Most people don't yeah, I was like 12. <laughs> Most people don't like the bit when you're taking off and then all of a sudden you kind of like dip back that's down a little the, bit. That's what? the bad bit. And it's the noises as well that I don't like. Why are you dipping back down? You'll notice it now. Mm. That'll be with you. I like takeoff mostly. Like it's the fun part. I like put away the book or whatever. I focus on takeoff. Well, yeah, exactly. Because it's well, Because it's fun. But. <laughs> Sorry. 300 people die every year at least. Well, that's aviation So, let's give you a pop quiz now about some safety-related facts. Are we ready? Oh. So, how many people survive a plane crash? Plane goes down, how many people survive? So, on average, or? percentage people on the plane. Percentage of people, yeah. 2%. You think most people Where are you getting your data from here? Have you collated all the... What Wikipedia page have you got? This? <laughs> have you collated all the like? Is this in it like the the crash like so the average amount of survivors from all the crashes or? It's a very reputable source. Okay, um, I wasn't doubting that for, for a moment. Really I'm going to say ninety nine percent. I think like seventy five. I think we had. Sorry, was it how many people survived? You've said your answer now. Survive <laughs> or, di or die. How many people survive? Yeah, I think it's really low because I think when a plane goes down, it's most people die. 
Well, see, the thing is, it depends what I think they're calling a crash. Yeah, it's a miracle because, on the like, I feel like there's See, a we do have four of these stats to get through. Okay. <laughs> well, my rationale is that I think there's a longer list of things that okay. I classified as a crash and that we only remember the Big spectacular ones where ones. nobody survives, but probably many of them happen when lots of people survive. So, what's the answer, Dan? The answer is 95.7%. I was way off. Woot! Wow. So I went over for prices right. For Mike one. Bonus, bonus information is that you're right. Crash is is a bit of a throwing term here. The um, a lot a lot of the time, have you ever heard the word CFIT used in aviation? That's a controlled a con CFIT controlled flight into terrain, which basically means your planes come down, not onto a runway, but in um, a controlled way. As in there was some control. So um, yeah, so. You actually, when your plane goes down, a lot of people don't even pay attention to the safety video because they believe that when the plane goes down, they're not going to survive. 95% of people do. That's wow. encouraging. I like that. Thank you, Dan. So, on my second question, again, academic papers, <laughs> how many people, as a percentage, listen and can recall a good amount of the facts from the safety video? It's going to be something depressing, like 20% or something. You're going to go higher this time. <laughs> 50%. Is this after the first time they've seen Because they're all pretty much similar, aren't they? So, you know, are people... Participants had a moderate rate of flying experience. So they've been on the plane a couple of times a year, every year. 40%. 40%. Either Mike has seen my notes, or he's exactly right. Yes. He was definitely looking earlier. 40%. <laughs> I can't read his writing when it's in front of me. face. <laughs> oh, we're all friends here, aren't we? 40% um, um, of people listen and can do a kind of an active amount of recalling of the safety features. There is something, though, that I think now I have my daughter with me when I fly. I go... <laughs> Best watch this in case something happens. Because one of us is going to have to sort this out. <laughs> there is a thing where apparently when you have a child, you are more aware of your mortality and therefore fear of and flight. And dues. They're the two things you're aware of on flights. How many people, um, maybe this doesn't work on a podcast, but Julia, can you do the brace position for me right now, please? It depends if you're in like luxury plus where you like do it backwards. Let's assume for you. It doesn't work that well on a podcast Format. Yeah, it's uh, you bend forward and Can you explain. Yeah, explain what you're doing. You're doing okay, right? Julia yeah, is now like putting her head between the legs. Mike, yeah, I mean I was just wrong. Mike, what? <laughs> so, well, it's definitely head between your knees, isn't it? And kiss your bum goodbye. The yeah. second round, isn't it? Is that? I thought it was lean forward, but you have your hands pressed against the seat in front of you. Oh, oh. yeah. Hello. Whatever it is, okay, it, it does whatever it is, only 15% of people can correctly do the brace position upon request. I thought the brace position didn't work. So, the brace position, we'll get up to that. The brace position, the key to the brace position is to make sure your head is, apparently, is touching the seat in front. Most people think, hover my head in front of the seat in front of me, because that way I'll have a bit of space. <laughs> when we crash, forgetting that you're probably going from like 300 miles an hour to no miles an hour very, very quickly. Therefore, imagine that kind of like slapping action your head's going to have against the seat in front, it's going to knock you out, probably going to take your neck off. Whether it was already touching, you get less of that slingshot action. Impact. Impact. So, why is it we don't recall this stuff then? We've all, if we, you know, you've seen kind of 
ten, you know, like the average person has been on what? Let's say 10, 15 flights in the line. There and back. He's from Sheffield. <laughs> <laughs> like, why can't we, why don't we remember these things? Is it just because we're in that state of, there's too much to take in, we're in quite a nervous state? Tan's pointing at she would suggest that he's already thought about this. Well, I, I read a paper the other day, actually, which was talking about what's the best way to get the safety information into your brain. Because as a phobic, I don't really want to be told about what could all, all go wrong with the plane before takeoff, so mm. I actively avoid it. But apparently the medium in which it's delivered massively changes the effectiveness of the message. So what do you think works best? The safety card, you know, that piece of card that goes yeah. with all the diagrams, the video, and let's just pretend this is a standard video without humour or yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever, or an interactive video which you can watch at your own pace. What what works best out of those three? I don't. So what's the what's the best? What is there anything to retain information? Like recall? I'd say interactive. I mean, logically, you just see me interactive, but I feel like it's a trick. It's going to be the card. Okay. The card. I'd, I'd say the card. Why so are we going to be interactive then? The card and the video perform equally. Badly, the interactive video is the one that wins because it's the important that you learn at your own pace. Yeah. The, the interesting study that was done in 2017 came out, which looked at, you know there's been this kind of explosion in kind of, in, um, in how to deliver the message and all. Everyone thinks the safety video has got really, really boring at all, no one's watching it. So yeah. obviously the right thing to do is to create, use music, use all those different yeah, types yeah, of things yeah. to make it a musical. Yeah. I think... Um, New Zealand Air even used naked, or might have been an Asian airline, used naked cabin crew, but did that body paint thing where it looks like you're wearing clothes. Yeah. So they really? even even that. And when you look at that, it does increase the mood that the passenger is in, but there is a trade-off in the amount of safety information that is retained off oh, the back of it. that's disappointing. We're going back to boring videos then. I'm quite hopefully. enjoying the like celebrity-studded video I saw recently. Because the attention is diverted away from the actual facts. Yeah, I mean, there's some. This, this. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do, but the to get people's feedback or to get people engaging with it more. It's like, is is the right time when you sat? I mean, it probably is when you sat down, but could you chunk it, or you know, could you could you somehow look to, I don't know, kind of goal gradient it or something like that, where you kind of reward for you know, kind of getting it right because it does feel like quite a passive where you've taken information on. Yeah. Well, and you do it at the beginning when you're on the ground, and then when you're in the air, that's a completely, I don't know, completely different feeling, essentially. And I wonder, you're not reminded at all of those things that you learned on the ground. Like, I wonder if there's not a sort of, if you really do want people to remember what the brace position is, um, or where their life jacket is, or etc. Like, can you not remind, like, play a little clip of it in the air? Because that's where you're going to be when, when things go wrong. And You'd really rather than be able to remember that. It's interesting that you mention that because there is a second secret safety video that you get shown if a crash is about to happen. And if you Google or you go on YouTube and search these, people have now started to film them. And basically, it's a more longer, more comprehensive thing about. And because they'll probably know at that time what type of landing they do, whether it's a water landing or a land landing, or because they'll know often know what the problem is before then. But if this time they'll do this second safety demonstration, which will be then, like you say, and will take advantage of the context-dependent memory of kind of you learn in the sky, you remember in the sky, mm -hmm. rather than learn on the ground and forget in the sky. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So finally, actually, Mike's found some really interesting tips on how to get cabin upgrades, which we thought were well worth sharing oh, on the yes. podcast. Yeah, somewhere, I think it was James Watley from here, he, um, he shared this the other day. Someone has written a blog post on how you uh, can hack the uh, free upgrade when you are on a flight. And what the, this person has wrote quite a detailed blog post, and um, what they said they do was they buy like a £10 massive bag of M&Ms, take it onto the, uh, onto the plane with them, ask for the head of cabin crew, and then give it over to them. Everyone's in a really good mood, and they get a free upgrade. So they basically use a reciprocity. Yeah. Give first in order to... How get. simple. Do we think it works? I mean, this person says it works. They say they do a lot of flying, and it works the, the a lot. The psychology literature is full of people doing incredible things for Skittles and M&Ms and it's small tokens. Is there any research on reciprocity working better depending on the person giving the initial gift? and the gift in return, for example, if they're the same gender. Is there any research on it being more effective in certain cases? That's that interesting, be... isn't it? Like you, you could have, whether an, an edible gift, attractiveness, <laughs> um, same name, are you more likely to like someone if you know they've got the same name or the same star How they're dressed, though, like the subtle cues. Because the thing I immediately thought was, is there any, like what are the health and safety implications of that? Is there any, you know, do, Surely, someone just giving something over that people are gonna uh, gonna eat. Yeah, is it is, the is sugar? Is it the there? sugar or is it the gift? Oh, that's so. interesting. Sugar, yeah, there's a lot around sugar as being. Okay, a, okay, I think I figured it out. I think what we need to do is carry out an experiment. <laughs> how how <laughs> yes. many overhead followers do we have? Loads, thousands, thousands. Thousands. So. Why don't we get people to arrange a condition for themselves, tweet in, Amazing. and Mike's going to pay for the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't get the upgrades, I'll, I'll sort that away. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we can find out whether, whether it is enticing people or how it's asked. I feel like right, we might we have a diffusion of responsibility problem with all of our thousands. We should have just said, just you. You listening just to this right now can carry out this experiment. We hope you enjoyed this slightly different episode of Obehave. We will continue to post interview style episodes, but we'll also include in this feed other roundtable discussions with members of the Ogilvy Change team. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow Ogilvy Change on Twitter and like us on Facebook. You can also check out our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com, where members of the Ogilvy Change team post their views on different behavioral science topics every week. If you're interested in coming along to Nudgedog this year, you can purchase tickets from Eventbrite, which we'll link in the description. Our keynote speaker this year is Nicholas Christakis, a hugely influential social scientist who investigates how social networks shape our lives. And as always, we'd like to thank Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways, and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thank you for listening.